right. Thank you for joining us this week on the Steve Schramm Show. Excited to have your ear for another week talking about the Christian life and apologetics, how we defend our faith. Got a super exciting interview coming up for you in this episode with Dr. Michael Behe. But first, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by the Creation Academy. You can get there by going to creationcourses.com. And there you'll find all sorts of um, uh, courses that we are in development for. You can find our Creation All Access program that you can get in on for about $34 per month. Get access to new and um, upcoming courses that we make available and all of the courses that we have there. So you can buy them one off and we're adding more over time. Uh, Or you can access to all current and future courses for $34 per month. So I invite you to join us over there at creationcourses.com and check that out. If you're so inclined. All right. Well, listen, I had a wonderful, wonderful time interviewing Dr. Michael Behe. And let me tell you what, I don't want to take up too much time at all before diving right into this interview. We went a little over an hour, but he absolutely knocked it out of the park. He answered lots of questions from me about his new book, Darwin Devolves. And let me just say right up front, you need to get a copy of this book. It's a wonderful book that will help you understand the limitations of Darwinian evolution. The better we get at science, the more falsified Darwin's theory becomes. Now, you're not going to hear about that in popular science publications, uh, but Dr. Behe has taken it on and does a great job making that clear for us both in the book and in this episode. Let me tell you real quick about him. Uh, Dr. Michael J. Behe is professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and he's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He received his Ph.D. in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania in 1978. Behe's current research involves delineation of design and natural selection in protein structures. In his career, he's offered over 40 technical papers and two, but now three, books. Darwin's Black Box, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution, and The Edge of Evolution, The Search for the Limits of Darwinism, and of course, his newest today, Darwin Devolves which argue that the living system at the molecular level are best explained as being the result of deliberate, intelligent design. The books have been reviewed by the New York Times, Nature, Philosophy of Science, Christianity Today, and other periodicals. Darwin's Black Box was internationally reviewed in over 100 publications and named by National Review and World Magazine as one of the 100 most important books of the 20th century. So to say that we're happy to have Dr. Michael Behe on with us is absolutely an understatement. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Michael J. Behe. All right, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on the Steve Schramm Show. We are absolutely delighted to have you. I'm I'm uh, delighted to be with you and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be really really great. I've already been talking up uh, the book a little bit. How long ago did it come out? It was just last month, right? 
Yeah, well, uh, February, six weeks or so. I February, guess. about yeah, about six weeks or so ago. So I'm losing track of time, but uh, but that's really exciting. So this is this is your third, uh, call it major book in the uh, in the intelligent design community, and I don't think anybody here is uh, is is a stranger to your work. I've talked to many people who have read uh, your your previous books and uh, are certainly excited about this one. What you know, what what I found really interesting is your books kind of build off of one another. You kind of in a roundabout way talk about the same thing but as we as as we get more evidence and more ability to look into these questions it seems like the whole paradigm of darwinism just seems to crumble with every new book that you write <laughs> yeah yeah that's right well it's it's just following the rule that the the more we know the less likely darwinism is you know, <laughs> he he started uh, he w- wrote his his book when you know, nobody knew about the cell, or it seemed seemed like a little piece of jelly, and nobody was sure if molecules really existed. And so, over over the over time, and especially in the last twenty, thirty years, uh, our knowledge of life at the foundational level uh, has exploded, and and I've been able to. Uh, kind of tell people about that. Yeah, that and that's awesome. You know, um, the interesting thing is nobody really seems to know that. I think everybody, the, the the popular mainstream kind of thinking is that Darwin had all of this figured out 150 years ago, and we're just a bunch of uh, dinosaurs stuck in the in the Stone Ages or something arguing against Darwin. It's it's like it's a settled fact. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's right. But what that you know, he, he he offered a really simple theory. You know, natural selection on random variation. Turns out it's so simple that you can kind of twist it around and and try to make it fit anything. And and uh, people kind of fool themselves when they think that Darwin's theory is explaining something when actually what they're just doing is trying to fit whatever they can into this kind of uh, <laughs> uh, rickety framework. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you mentioned, I loved some of the examples of that you, you gave in the book, but I, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. Why don't we kind of start uh, at the beginning? I, I, I gave you some some questions that I thought might be good questions uh, before, we, before we ever got on the call here, and basically what I want to do, in a sense, is walk through the story of, of your book. You, you mentioned a couple of really... Uh, helpful points all throughout. It was a great read. I, I absolutely uh, enjoyed myself thoroughly getting to read it. I hate it. it. took as long as it did for me, but I'm a slow reader. So uh, it took me a couple months to get it down um, and, and really take the notes I wanted to, but I enjoyed it. So why don't we start kind of at the beginning. If you could just give us like a really brief uh, history of Darwinian evolution. You mentioned something in the book about the, his Darwin's first theory and Darwin's last theory, and I really wasn't even clear on that before before you uh, enlightened me uh, through your book. And then also, if you'll just briefly mention the role that uh, Sir Alfred w- Russell Wallace played. You mentioned him in your book as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, uh, most people know the general outlines that, you know, back in the 1800s, Darwin uh, was a young naturalist, and he went on a an ocean voyage uh, on an exploring ship, and visited South America and the Galapagos and and so on and it was a time of great exploration and and he saw things that uh he didn't see back in England <laughs> different kinds of animals that that seemed unique to their places and he kind of uh puzzled about that and eventually he came up with this theory of uh of um 
uh, evolution by uh, natural selection and, and random variation. And in a nutshell, it just says that, well, if you've got uh, a population of some animal species and, and some of them differ from each other, uh, and if one of them, if the, if the variation helps an animal survive, then it will tend to survive and leave more offspring than uh, others of its kind. Mm-hmm. And the offspring, if, if they can inherit this trait, then they'll have a better chance too. And eventually the trait will take over the, the species and then maybe another uh, improvement will come along, another uh, help will come along. And over time, then perhaps the species will change considerably. Uh, but there, there's a number of ideas packed into into his his theory. Uh, not it's not just one idea. It's it's got the idea of random variation and natural selection and common descent and and a few others too. And I, I write about those in in um, an early chapter in the book. But there are a couple of other assumptions that are even more critical to Darwin's theory than than those and. They rarely get talked about. They're kind of assumed. And the first one, uh, which I dubbed uh, Darwin's first theory, I, I talk about the, the other ones, the normal ones, as Darwin's middle theories, uh, just a little nomenclature there. And uh, his first theory is that random variation could supply whatever was necessary to build complex systems like, you know, birds' feathers and fish mm-hmm. scales and, and, and so on. Yeah. And he didn't uh, assume that because there was evidence to show that it could, but rather uh, because he assumed that, there, uh, that, uh, that God would not, uh, would not uh, provide it, or, or rather, I, I should say he he used the argument from evil to say that, well, he didn't think God would make a uh, a world in which there was so much uh, predation and animal suffering and and so on. He used a famous example of a a wasp that preyed on caterpillars and uh, laid its eggs within uh, caterpillar bodies and that grow up and, and paralyze the caterpillar and eat it from the inside out. That all sounds kind of, you know, like fun to me, but yeah. <laughs> but, but Darwin, he didn't like that. And so he says, you know, I can't think that a good God would uh, set up such uh, a system, hmm. and therefore, you know, therefore is deducing uh, the result from this. Therefore, I see no reason why the eye had to be designed. Ooh. So he, he made this assumption that uh, because of the problem of evil, you know, God wouldn't have done it this way. And so therefore something like his theory had to be true. Yeah, and, not, uh, not, just on that point, not much has changed. I mean, you know, as I talk yeah, to people right. in apologetics kind of circles who who don't, you know, who don't believe in God, as I as I talk to them, they they say some of those same exact things today. Well, God wouldn't have done it that way. Well, I I don't know that, so I'm not sure that you know that either. But that's besides the point. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and I I write in the book that if you you know read the Bible, the ancient Israelites, you know, didn't 
didn't seem to think that the fact that there were wild animals that would eat you when you went out for a walk uh, showed that there was no no God. <laughs> they just thought that he was, you know, he was uh, sovereign over all of of life, all of creation, sure. and uh, and his his last theory. So that was Darwin's first theory that God wouldn't have done it that way. And the last theory is really very interesting. It's that. Uh, not only is there random changes in natural selection, but they can add up step by step to make uh, even the most complex biological system. Hmm. So that you know, one step comes along, one random change, and and it's favorable, and another one, and another one, and they add up to make such things as feathers and and gills and scales and and, and so on. Right. And again, there was no evidence for that. And it's just kind of the imagination of uh, Darwin and his uh, his subsequent disciples. Uh, but none of neither of those, neither that the first assumption or the last, the first theory or the last theory. Uh, ever get mentioned when people talk about uh, yeah. Darwinism? Uh, they're they're kind of built into it. Yeah, know, yeah, that they, that's a good point. And, and and you know, if I this might be an interesting point to 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 put this in here, but uh, a lot of people don't realize that there's a huge gap between believing in even universal common descent and the mechanisms that are. Uh, um, leveraged to, you know, martial evolution. In other words, uh, you, for example, hold to universal common descent, I believe, and yet you reject Darwin's theory of evolution. And so, uh, you know, whether or not universal common descent is true, uh, you affirm it, I don't. But that's not even the question before us here today, really, is, is where we're headed. Um, sure, it, yeah, uh, that, that's what I was uh, saying a minute or two ago when uh, I said that Darwin Darwin's theory has a number of different uh, ideas all wrapped up in one. Yes. And two of those important ones, as you say, are random mutation, well, random mutation, natural selection, and common descent. Mm. But a lot, of, a number of scientists before Darwin had, uh, had advanced the idea of common descent. Maybe uh, a animals and plants are descended from earlier versions, but it was always a purposeful uh, process. It mm. was always teleological. It, mm -hmm. it was ordained by God or directed by God or something, but Darwin's claim to fame is not the idea of common descent, but that it occurs completely mindlessly, that right. nobody is directing it. There's no teleological principle. There's no guidance. Um, and in and, and my uh, way of thinking, that that is the most important uh the most important claim of Darwin's theory you know common right. descent common descent well you know that's interesting you know <laughs> but uh, even if you think it's true then it just says well you know there were ancestors in the past who had some some feature say wings or something and there are descendants that have it too right well <laughs> that's great but it doesn't explain how it got there, and right. it doesn't explain how new things arise. Right. So it's all in the random mutation and natural selection. That's where the, the philosophical and uh, scientific uh, 
you know the major points uh, are right there. Yeah, yeah. So that's so that's interesting, and that's of course that's of course where we're headed. Now I'm going to take a detour on a couple things here before we get to the to the uh, the the real biology of the situation because I want to just talk about a couple of the other um, uh, underlying things that you you set the stage with in the book. Uh, one thing is Alfred Russell Wallace. Um, a lot of people don't know that Darwin's theory, I guess, had I guess what you would call a co-founder or a co-discoverer. And uh, a lot of people think of, of, of Darwin as what uh, Dawkins, uh, you know, dubbed having the ability or giving us the ability to, to become intellectually fulfilled atheists, uh, because that was essentially the view that Darwin argued from. But Wallace was a, a Christian, or at least a theist, and remained that way for the rest of his life, as far as we know. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, around the, at the same time as Darwin was exploring South America and, and uh, other places, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace was uh, in uh, in Indonesia and Malaysia uh, in in the jungles there, living with natives and so on. And and he thought of many of the things that uh, Darwin did. That, that is the idea of random change or changes in natural selection, and uh, hmm. A couple of years before Darwin actually wrote Origin of Species, Russell Wallace, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, wrote him a letter and says, "Hey, you know, I have this idea," and he outlined pretty much what Darwin said was his 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 own theory. So he was thinking exactly along the hmm. same line. Hmm. But the big difference, is, as you say, is that uh, Wallace never thought that. Uh, natural selection and random mutation could explain everything. Uh, And and especially he didn't think that it could explain human intelligence, the human mind Mm -hmm. and speech and art and and so on, and and many other things too, I think, the human hands. and, uh, And he always viewed natural selection not as a creative or building process, but as a process of elimination, getting rid of organisms that didn't fit in. So here you have, and Russell, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace is, is uh, given the title the co-founder of the theory of evolution. So here you have the, the very co-founder of the theory <laughs> of evolution, who in our day would be called, called an intelligent design proponent. Right. So, <laughs> that, isn't that ironic? Yeah, absolutely. And it goes to show you that uh, there was a whole lot more involved there than just the evidence in concluding, <laughs> as Darwin did, that, that he had solved everything. Yeah, that, that's that's so interesting. I mean, most people, I mean, everybody knows who Charles Darwin is, but virtually nobody, I, I, especially in popular circles, has a clue uh, who uh, who poor uh, Brother Wallace uh, was. And so, you know, I, I find that a shame because I think if people knew more of the history, you know, they would perhaps come to some different conclusions about it. You know, that might be a good point to, to, to mention. One of the things you said in the book is that you uh, were reading an academic journal one day, and you found yourself listed as a villain alongside none other than Joseph Stalin and Osama bin Laden. Uh, now, that's interesting. I've only been talking to you for a few minutes now, about 20 minutes, uh, and I, I don't get the sense that you are like either of those men. So, uh, uh, Oh, you don't know my hidden side. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that that may be true, but, uh, you know, what what is it that's motivating, I guess, in your mind, this harsh attitude in academia towards Darwinian critics? 
Uh, well, uh, that's an excellent uh, question, and you know, I have some guesses, but uh, ultimately, I don't know for sure. Right. But it's it's clearly the case number one that there's been uh, you know bad blood between uh, Darwinism and uh, re- religious people mm. for a long time yeah. who haven't accepted much of his theory, and and so there's kind of a his- historical baggage and. Another one is that um, many uh, scientists, including uh, most biologists, want Darwinism to be true. They they don't want there to be uh, any outside agents involved in in life, and that's yeah. uh, one reason is is can be philosophical, but another can be kind of simply uh, professional jealousy that they. They want to be able to explain all of their subject matter, kind of like physics and chemistry wants to be able to explain all of their mm. uh, subject matter. And uh, let's see, I had one <laughs> One more is uh, uh, that it's a, a bit of a defensiveness that when they're challenged, uh, they want to be able to say that, no, they have everything under control. Mm. And so when somebody, especially somebody who knows uh, a bit about the topic, when they say, no, you know, I'm looking at the evidence and I'm unconvinced, then people can get furious because uh, that kind of puts them, you know, quickly on the defensive. Because yeah. if this uh, person who who's, knows the uh, area pretty well says that, he sees problems, then, you know, what's the matter with you? Why, why don't you see them? Or he's, he's essentially saying you're wrong. Right. So it's, it's complex. Yeah, it, yeah, it is a complex issue. Um, and, you know, it, it's a shame, especially, and this isn't something that I'd even planned to mention, but later on in the book, you, 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 told, you said something that kind of startled me. Um, you said that the reality is about one-third of professional biologists are Darwin skeptics. Um, yeah, that yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah. A lot of biologists think Darwin's theory can't explain everything we know, or even a lot of what we know. But they're casting around for some other naturalistic, uh, materialistic theory to replace it, and they have to kind of uh, walk a fine line because they want to try to find this new theory and and they probably are optimistic or <laughs> hoping that they'll they'll uh, get honors uh, for doing so and but nonetheless they don't want to give aid and comfort to the enemy uh, or they they don't want to be perceived as doing so by their colleagues so they can't diss Darwin's theory too much uh, so they've got to kind of uh, use flowery language and say what a swell fellow he was but that he didn't get everything correct, they would say. And so we have to add to his theory. Sure. But in, in reality, it, it all has to go pretty much root and branch, except for, you know, uh, little small things near the surface of biology. Uh, so these, these folks that are casting around for additional stuff, they're, they're going to remain frustrated uh, forever <laughs> yeah yeah well and the, the the sheer irony is is that even all of these new attempts they kind of rest upon the foundation still that that darwin laid at least that's what it seems uh, to me and yet darwin didn't even have the ability to assess the question of whether or not the claims he was making 
were true. I mean, they were mere assertions. They weren't arguments that 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 he leveled. Really, they were just assertions because he couldn't have proved them. Uh, yeah, that that's right. He he just uh, essentially laid out some speculations, and and it was a real break from the science of his time, which was yeah. uh, tried to be rigorous to you know really demonstrate and predict and show your predictions come true and. And Darwin, you know, was uh, pretty much spun a lot of stories. Yeah. He, got, he gathered, you know, some, some uh, uh, facts that, you know, would support it or, or you know, would, if, if the theory were true, then uh, the facts, you know, you might expect them to, uh, to be the case. But it didn't show, it certainly didn't show cause and effect. Right. And uh, as as you said he he didn't uh he didn't even he didn't even know how, you know, how much he didn't know. Uh he didn't know the uh process of inheritance. Uh most people forget, but Darwin and all of the uh, scientists of his time didn't know how traits were inherited. They didn't know about DNA, they didn't know uh, you know, pretty much of anything. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and uh, Darwin proposed a theory that uh, uh, whereby little imaginary particles called gemmules were ga- were given off by all parts of the body and gathered in the reproductive cells, and uh, and it was totally wrong. Uh, uh-huh. And he, you know, he he had the foggiest idea about uh, things w- that we now know are or the basis of biology. Wow. I mean, you know, and this doesn't require too much comment, but I mean, it looks like given what we know now that he didn't know then and how much different things are, I mean, it looks like you'd almost have to be embarrassed. I mean, to, you know, to, yeah. to, to rest <laughs> upon those laurels. But anyway, we, you know, while we're on the sociological subject, you know, in the book, you mentioned a few of the red flags and I don't know if you have, you know, just one or two of those you want, you want to talk about the one that I'm, if I can remember correctly, that I'm, that I'm really interested in is when people just kind of wave the wand of evolution over things. Cause I, I hear this all the time. I, I'm a, I'm a, productivity nut and like a personal development I, I just really like I really like that stuff but so many people who talk in those circles everything they just have to mention evolution they just have to do it uh, and there just seems to be no good reason why and you talk about that a little bit in the book uh, yeah I, I, I do it's it's kind of a gratuitous invocation of, of evolution anybody who reads a a magazine or a newspaper or something that talks about uh, biology is going to run into sentences like, you know, well, the the ostrich, uh, the ostrich is the tallest bird in the world, and it it has evolved to, you know, uh, to be able to run very fast, and and the word evolved in there, you know, doesn't do any work. Uh, <laughs> you could say, and, and the ostrich runs very fast. Yeah. You know, why use that word in there? And, and it's even in um, biology, you know, textbooks and, and so on, for even the uh, most severe problems, you know, the genetic code or something like that, but nobody has a clue how that could have come about, but you'll read in textbooks that uh, the genetic code has evolved to be, you know, very elastic and will allow uh, mistakes to be, to be tolerated. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's this gratuitous invocation. But, 
in many of those things, you can just leave out the word evolve or its derivatives, and you have as much information as you had before. It's kind of just a, uh, you know, saluting uh, yeah. Darwin's theory just to show our bona fides. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's useless, really. It's useless. Uh, it's not even information. There's no information content in those words. It doesn't tell you anything different about. There's nothing. No, no new information added to a sentence that says that the ostriches evolved to run that way. Um, it's right, just exactly. meaningless. So. There, there have been no studies of, you know, how a big bird would be able to start slow and run faster or, you know, what the nerves, uh, the changes in nerves would have to be, changes in muscles and bones and so on. You know, it's all just... Uh, in the imagination. Wow, wow. Well, there are two or three more, I think, of those sorts of red flags that you mentioned in the book. Now, I'm not going to let you give away all your secrets here because I want folks to go buy the book. Uh, to, but, but I promise you, the others are just that good. Uh, it's uh, it's really, really interesting. So, uh, well, uh, by the by the title of the book, uh, I think it's pretty obvious to see somewhat where this is going. If we haven't mentioned it yet, of course, the title of the book is Darwin devolves. Now you take at kind of this breaking point, you, you, you open the book up by giving us some of the background and some of that sociological stuff. And then um, the next parts of the book are, are more concerned with getting to the biology of the matter. But the first thing you do before you get there, which I appreciate, is you take a whole chapter to basically just marvel at how extraordinary of biological systems and structures, etc., we have discovered in the past, I mean, recent history, um, and, and, and even, uh, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, we've been uh, slowly discovering more and more things, and the more we discover, the more impossible it seems for Darwin to accomplish um, what, what he said his theory could. So I'm interested, if you would, just to take a minute, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the design we see in nature, and, and I'll remind everybody that uh, when he mentioned, when, when Dr. Behe mentioned um, Darwin's first and last theory, by the time of that last theory, uh, one of the assumptions that he had in there was that we would be able to successively see natural selection and random mutation build uh, upon itself, essentially, uh, to come up with these elegant structures. So what are some examples of some of the uh, engineering, you might say, that we find in the biological world today? Yeah, well, uh, a number of things have, have uh, been discovered in the past few decades because new techniques, new, um, uh, new uh, machinery, instrumentation, and so on has become available that, that lets you see deeper. You know, uh, science depends on its machinery. You know, it's like when the microscope was first invented, uh, we, could, we could see that there were bacteria and uh, compound eyes on insects and so on. Mm. Well, uh, new... Uh, new uh, video equipment, new uh, uh, microscopy equipment uh, allowed some scientists in England uh, about oh, five, seven years ago to look at the, uh, a tiny insect called a plant hopper. Mm. And this plant hopper is, can jump even, even further than grasshoppers can. And uh, it was known for a while that it had, or, or one of its uh, uh, young stages, its uh, 
uh, developed in stages, had these bumps on its hind leg, uh, hind legs, and nobody knew what they were for and figured, well, you know, there's just rough, rough areas there. And, uh, but these scientists were able to uh, film this insect jumping and film it uh, so closely that they could see what was going on. And it turns out that the bumps weren't just bumps. They were the teeth of gears. There were, there were intermeshing gears in its hind legs. <laughs> and when it started to jump, it turns out that it's so small that a nerve impulse that goes down to its legs, which essentially tells, tells it to start to jump, would arrive, could arrive in the two legs at different times, and that would cause it to tumble if, if one leg started before the other. So these gears make sure that as one starts, it starts to push against the other one, and, and the two can coordinate. Gosh. But uh, pictures of this are available on the Internet, and I remember when it first came out, there were whole lots of theological discussions <laughs> going on I about bet. plant hopper gears. Uh, and that's because it's so clearly designed that uh, that you can't just you just can't ignore it. Um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of like the fine tuning argument that you usually hear for something like the universe, but on a literally a microscopic scale. Yeah, yeah, and if if those gear teeth were not you know just you know placed just right, you know that would make it worse. It it wouldn't help it at all. You know, like wow. two gears that are out of sync that that doesn't help a machine run very well very well at all. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy, but uh, and these are things that we have just discovered in you know this one in the past ten years. Wow, um, is there another like one of the classic examples I think of is the bacterial um, 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 flagellum being essentially an outboard motor. Yeah, and, yeah, and, that's right. And uh, I wrote about that in uh, twenty years ago in Darwin's. Yeah black box and and people were astounded then but you know in the meantime uh science has uncovered a, a number of other motors turns out that bacteria have all sorts of different ways to to swim and uh one uh that i wrote about i i like is that uh some uh some uh bacteria have multiple flagella they have seven flagella wow. uh, in a group, and they all rotate to help it swim more powerfully. Huh. But since they're all rotating in the same direction and they're so close-packed, they would kind of rub against each other. If you can imagine two gears going clockwise and they bump against each other, then the one side of one gear is trying to go up while the other one's trying to go down. Wow. But, but these bacteria, the ones that use this, have, uh, they have uh, interstitial gears. They have uh, little counter-rotating, uh, counter-rotating gears between the flagella. And that allows one, uh, that allows the fl one flagella to rotate clockwise while the 
counter-rotating gear is going counterclockwise, <laughs> and the next flagella can go clockwise again. Wow. So uh, it, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, William Paley, in the uh, beginning of the 1800s, uh, wrote about uh, you know the uh, finding a watch on in a field and and knowing it was designed. Well, turns out that's that's getting to be literally true. We are seeing that at the foundation of life that there there's literally these mechanical devices that have to use gears and pulleys and motors and so on to to uh, to work. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Well, you titled that chapter Fathomless Elegance, and I think that's just about the best title um, it could have yeah, been Yeah, I, 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 I intended it, you know, I had a double meaning. That's, it's fathomless because there's no end of it. You know, right. you keep discovering more and more, and it's fathomless because we, it's hard to wrap your mind around it, you know, because there, there's so much, there's, uh, you know, so much to just discover and know. Sure, and you know we uh, one of the things you talk about uh, earlier than this in the book uh, is the is the pretense of knowledge, this idea that we've got it all figured out. And you know, I, I just uh, you know here we are in twenty twenty nineteen, and um, later on in the book, I'm kind of meshing some ideas together. But later on in the book, you talk about the progress that we've made uh, in such recent years, and I just I, I can't imagine what twenty years down the road from yeah, now. That, that, we're going to know um it's it's it that is truly fathomless to me yeah so. yeah yeah uh, what what you can make a, a firm bet on is is that you know there's plenty more left to to find out that uh, yeah. the complexity and the the elegance uh, you know goes on uh much much further than we now know that's amazing that's amazing so uh Moving on, there have been new attempts, we've mentioned this briefly, but there have been some new attempts to kind of, uh, uh, well, I should maybe start with this, is, is those, those biologists who have reckoned with the fact that Darwin's mechanism, uh, they don't feel uh, is going to cut it, and we will talk more specifically about that in a moment. But you mentioned that there have been some attempts to... You know, come up with new ideas that that don't uh, that supposedly supposedly circumvent Darwin's mechanism. Some of the ones you mentioned in the book are Evo Devo, uh, natural genetic engineering. I think that's uh, Dr. James Shapiro's uh, uh, suggestion. Um, you mentioned a few of these in the book, and I, I certainly we don't have time for you to explain them all right now. But you ultimately, after explaining all of these, you, you come back to one reason, one really simple reason why all of these ultimately fail to solve the entire problem that you're attempting to 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 fix or at least to to make clear to elucidate with this book Darwin devolves so can you kind of explain why uh, ultimately none of these guys none of these alternative theories uh, are going to answer the question that that Darwin's theory uh, raises sure the the basic problem the problem that everybody has to explain is how was the elegant and uh, complex machinery of life produced. You know, how was the eye produced? How was the bacterial flagellum produced? And, and Darwin's answer was, uh, ran, you know, in general, was random mutation and natural selection. Mm -hmm. uh, these other theories that have been developed more recently uh, are supposedly additions to 
Darwin's theory, and they mostly appeal to things that we've discovered in the cell. Uh, for example, you mentioned EvoDevo. There are mechanisms in the cell uh, in place that help organisms develop. There are essentially um, blueprints and uh, crew chiefs and foremen of, of construction crews uh, <laughs> that are responsible for deciding the timing and the placement and uh, the uh, deployment of all sorts of different supplies and machinery to build the shapes of animals. And uh, the uh, proponents of EvoDevo say, well, if we kind of rearrange those a bit, uh, maybe they could make differently shaped animals. Hmm. But they never explain where that... Uh, that uh, complex system came from in the first place. How did the first, how did the first uh, evolutionary developmental regulatory system uh, come into being? They, yeah. they essentially leave that to, to Darwin to explain. And uh, the same with um, the uh, natural genetic engineering. It's very interesting, and maybe it does explain something or other, but it doesn't explain where the complex machinery of the cell came from that yeah. the cell itself uses to essentially manipulate some of its own components. Uh, and uh, they don't explain where that came from, e even though they, they try to use that to say, well, maybe it can change things or it can help uh, evolution somehow. Right. So none of, them, none of them, except for Charles Darwin, and, and except for another crazy theory about the multiverse, uh, right. none of them try to explain the complex machinery, what I call a purposeful arrangement of parts. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I, I think I lost count of the times I read the words don't even try to explain uh, yeah. in, in italics throughout the book, because essentially what we've got here is just this assumption of, oh, well, we know we got to this point. Now let's now let's see how we can yeah, take it yeah, further. Sure. But nobody assesses that original question or even attempts to, to, to get at it. And that's really ultimately the problem. So uh -huh. so that brings us uh, really to what I read as kind of the climax of the book. I mean, I, I got to one page where I finally just underlined and starred all over the thing so that when I come back to it, uh, I'd be able to find it again. Uh, you talk in the book about what you call the family line. And you give the example of, uh, ironically, Darwin's finches and also uh, a species of fish called um, cichlids. I think that's how you say that. Uh, right. Can you maybe talk, uh, and we're really getting down to the meat and potatoes here, can you talk a little bit about um, the family line, what it is that you discovered in your assessment of, of the new evidence? Sure, yeah. I, I think most people have heard about uh, Darwin's finches, the Galapagos finches. Yes. That one of the places he stopped on his travels around the world were these islands, the Galapagos, which are on the equator off the coast of Ecuador, a couple hundred miles. And he saw that there were finch species there that didn't occur anywhere else in the world. And he wondered how these these little isolated islands might have gotten you know, up to a dozen or so uh, species of finch uh, just for themselves. And this uh, and other things kind of led him to the idea of the theory of evolution by changes and natural selection, that 
the idea was some birds flew there a long time ago, and over time they specialized. They uh, some had got uh, larger in size, some smaller, some specialized on seafood, other on seeds, and and so on, and then accumulated different shapes. Um, but it turns out that uh, these days, uh, well, you can tell a couple of uh, of things that the finches on uh, the Galapagos Islands um, belong to 12 different species, and the species are grouped into two, three, or four different genera, genuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out, if you remember back to high school, the levels of biological classification starts with kingdom and then phylum and then class and order and, and so on. And genus and species are the two lowest levels of classification. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you can, I write in the book that you can think of it in, in terms of, a, of numbers, place values in an eight-digit number, because there's eight major classification levels. Yes. And I said, uh, I wrote, uh, think of it in terms of a sum of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's, that's six figures, and cents. Uh, dimes and pennies columns. And if you think about it, the finches then have only changed, even granting Darwin's idea, they've only changed in the last two columns, the pennies and dimes column. And the finches are supposed to have been, uh, have arrived on the Galapagos two million years ago. (laughs) Right. So in, you know, millions or, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of generations hmm. of these things with fierce, uh, supposedly fierce, uh, random, uh, fierce uh, selection, random mutation, all they could do is change the crummy sense column <laughs> of, the, uh, of this large sum of, uh, of money. And I, I write wow. in the book that, you know, even the IRS, and we think about that this tax season. But the IRS tells you to round off the cents in your in your figures on your tax return. And if right. we did that, if we did that with the finches, then all of this touted variation would would be disregarded. It, right. It's really trivial wow. trivial changes, uh, even over such a long period of time. And the same with this group of fish that you mentioned, the cichlid fish that. Uh, they're all over the world, but in a couple of lakes in Africa, there are hundreds of species that are native just to those lakes. And uh, many evolutionists have, have, you know, pointed to it and said, you know, behold the power of natural selection. We, we got hundreds of species in just this one, you know, or, or several lakes, uh, nowhere else in the world. But again, they're hundreds of species, and there's maybe 50 or so different genera, but there are no new categories higher than that. And the next highest category after genus is family. Mm-hmm. And so I argue in the book that Darwin's mechanism does work, but it can't change an organism into something that differs at the family level uh, from its ancestor. And just to give uh, folks a uh, an understanding of that, family differences kind of like cats versus dogs. Right. So those had to be designed at least 
down to the level of family, the cat family or the dog family. Hmm. Uh, and after that, well, maybe some random changes and and selection could fiddle around the edges, uh, but uh, down to that basic level required purposeful, intelligent design. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love that. And frankly, and, and I know we differ on, on this point, I appreciate that the that most intelligent design advocates or advocates really just focus on on that level of design. It's not really even a question about the, the, the age of the earth. And I don't even want to go there other than to say that for the first 60 or so episodes of, of this very podcast, all we talked about was different things about Young Earth Creationism. It used to be a, a Young Earth Creationism uh, exclusive podcast. So I still have a lot of listeners who are uh, exclusively Young Earth Creationists, as am I. And uh, any Young Earth Creationist, frankly, who reads this chapter is going to start shouting up and down for joy because this is the kind of thing that we've thought for a while. <laughs> and so, frankly, we uh-huh. were quite happy to have you say, uh, you know, that, yes, that, 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 that past the level of family, we don't change. But but frankly, yeah. I like uh, the way you've got it uh, be, because um, what you show is that even assuming a timeline that uh, many Christians do agree with, even though some of us don't, even assuming that long timeline, uh, regardless of what the time is, you're saying that changes past the family level just don't seem possible by Darwin's mechanism is really yeah, what the that- evidence shows. That, that's right. So even granting the uh, premise that, you know, the Earth is billions of years old and yeah. things have been changing all this while, you still can't get, hmm. you know, a dog from a cat or, <laughs> or vice versa. That's amazing. So, uh, and, and that's kind of not the half of it. I, I go into, uh, in that same um, chapter, to talk about the genes that have been shown to affect finches, the variation in finches, and only one has been really tracked down, but uh, it, it's, it's the difference between a functioning gene and, and a gene that has been degraded, that is, that mm. works less well than it used to. So th- these changes aren't even, they're not building things, they're, they're simply degrading uh, genes, things at the molecular level. Sure, sure. And uh, frankly, I mean, that leads me to the next thing that I, I wanted to kind of discuss with you quickly here. Um, what you begin to talk about, and this is kind of the, the essence of, of the book, uh, Darwin Devolves, is that these um, touted factors that supposedly are the very drivers of, of evolution, namely random mutation and natural selection, uh, you actually show in the book that these are ironically two of the three factors that limit evolution. They don't help it. Uh, they, uh, as a matter of fact, are the very thing that keeps it from moving forward. Now, so you mentioned uh, two of them in the book, uh, random mutation and natural selection. And the third one, which I wouldn't mind for you to discuss very briefly, is something you've already dealt with at length, which is irreducible complexity. And anybody who studies origins certainly has heard about about that. Um, but you gave an illustration in the book about a hot air balloon. Uh, and and I don't uh, you know claim to know all the science behind that, but essentially the illustration you give is that it's actually the very mechanism that causes the balloon to rise off the ground in the first place that keeps it from flying off into the upper atmosphere. And I thought that was a very helpful uh, analogy. So can you just a little bit talk about how it is that random mutation and natural selection actually limit 
evolution? Sure, yeah. Well, it's only, again, been in the past 10, 20 years that we've developed the techniques to uh, determine this, but uh, in the past, uh, scientists could see or uh, breeders could see that there were occasionally there'd be a change in an organism and maybe it'd help or something, and <laughs> and that uh, organism would be bred or it would take over a Petri dish or, or something like that. But they couldn't figure out what the change was because they didn't have the ability to look at the molecular level, at the level of DNA. And it's important to remember that mutations are changes in DNA, changes down at the molecular level. Sure. But heck, but people have, you know, three billion uh, DNA letters in, in their genome, and trying to find out which one changed is, is a tall task. Yeah. But it tur- turns out that we can do that now. And, uh, and uh, to make a long story short, uh, almost all of these helpful changes are ones that break or degrade pre-existing genes. Huh. They're not building anything new. They're breaking old stuff. Yeah. And, and many folks at this point say, well, wait a second, how can it help to break something? And uh, if you think as an analogy, uh, suppose, your, suppose your life depended on your car getting a little bit better gas mileage. You know, what could you do to help it get a bit, of, uh, a bit more gas mileage? Well, one thing you could do is take out the back seat and throw it away, <laughs> sure. you know, take off the hood of the car, throw yeah. that away, you know, lighten it. And, you know, those things are useful in many circumstances. But if your life depended on you getting better gas mileage right now, then that would be the way to go. Sure. And that seems to be what's going on with, in, in many of these cases, even the, uh, you know, the iconic examples of evolution. It turns out to be devolution more than it is evolution. It's, it's changed by degrading stuff not by uh, making stuff. Wow. Yeah, that really, <laughs> that overtur- yeah. overturns the whole thing. Uh, I mean, yeah, really. It, it sure does. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you talk about uh, one of the things in the book is that you're just so much more likely, even just, I mean, the analogies are helpful, but just looking at the biology and the mathematics of it, you're just so much more likely to come across uh, uh, something that could break uh, the existing system than to build up something entirely new that it's like it just can't even get off the ground uh, for breaking itself. That's right. Yeah, it turns out that, you know, mutations that break something will occur, you know, a hundreds or a thousand times faster than a mutation which might even in theory be be constructive and that's simply because proteins and genes and so on these molecules at the foundation of life they're complex machines and like other complex machines maybe your your car or your computer or something if you take a hammer and smack it there's a lot more places that you can do damage to it <laughs> than you can improve it with a hammer yeah. and same same thing with the protein and so if hitting it with a hammer and breaking something off, say you knock off that hood of the car or something, uh, if that helps, then, uh, then you're off to the races. Then natural selection will grab that uh, 
that helpful change, even though it's a degradative change, it's helpful, natural selection will grab that and spread it throughout the population so that now the whole population is doing better in the circumstances, but they're degraded a certain amount, and then they're a little bit more fragile than they were, too. Yeah, and really what you what you bring this to is you actually coined, uh, perhaps you'll go down in history for this, but you actually coined a little uh, uh, a scientific law to kind of put this succinctly, didn't you? The yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I had a head start, though. There, there was a, there's a law called Dolo's Law. Uh-huh. Dolo's Law was uh, from the uh, eight, uh, 19th century, uh, and it simply said that you know, if a species loses some ability during its evolution, like, say, penguins have descended from seabirds, but they can't produce flight feathers now, if they lose that ability, Dalo's Law said, then they will never regain it. And it uh, turns out, I talk about some uh, recent molecular experiments that uh, looked at something like this, and they saw that not only... Uh, can't it um, regain something that, but that you can't uh, you you can't uh, go forward either. It's it's hard to uh, go from uh, a past state to a a future state. So I call that Dolo's timeless law. Yeah. In the um, in the um, original, it was saying you can't go back again. And pretty much Dolo's timeless law says, yeah, and you, you can't go forward either by random mutation and natural selection. <laughs> there's, no, there's no privileged position for the past or the future in, Darwinian, in the Darwinian mechanism. Yeah. And so it applies equally to, uh, to future changes as well as to past changes, too. Yeah, and actually... There's you- a lot of... Yeah, you spend a whole chapter just on that, so I would I definitely encourage everybody to pick that up just to kind of get the rationale for that. Uh, but you also have what you call the first rule of adaptive evolution. Is that right? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. that as well. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. I, I, I've coined you know, so many laws. I'll tell you, I, sh- I sh- should be a legislator. Uh, yeah, the first rule of adaptive evolution uh, is... Uh, is if you're an organism that's trying to adapt to a change, it is to break or blunt any gene whose loss would allow you to produce more descendants. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of a reflection of that, uh, what we were just talking about, about, the fact that it's much easier to break a gene than it is to build up a gene. So that means that it's faster too, and the fastest the the uh, fastest change, the fastest mutation to arrive on the scene that will be helpful, will rapidly be grabbed by natural selection and spread throughout the population. But since degradative mutations are the fastest ones right. to arrive, then that means that. You know, most adaptation, most evolution will be by degradative 
mutations. Mm-hmm. So, so what we really have is that uh, that random mutation and natural selection, which are touted as the primary drivers of the Darwinian um, um, theory, are really degradative, degradative in nature. And the fact of the matter is, is that those changes will get made. Those um, degradative, I guess I'm saying that right, changes will actually take place far, far sooner than anything even remotely constructive would. Um, That's right. You, 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 and you, I, yeah. I was just going to add that, and once you kind of spend that genetic patrimony, your inheritance, then you don't have it to adapt mm. to another change in the environment. And so eventually a, an organism gets stuck. So that's how random mutation and natural selection, they promote uh, evolution at little levels, the yeah. species and genus, by using the first rule, by breaking stuff. And but then they get stuck, and so they can't go uh, any further than the family line. Exactly. Oh, I love that. I love that. And of course, um, we don't have time today to discuss uh, irreducible complexity. Of course, you devoted an entire book to that. Uh, I, I believe Darwin's Black Box was entirely about that. Essentially, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty yep. much. Yeah. So th- there's a really helpful summary in Darwin um, devolves of of the arguments about irreducible complexity. Which uh, for the listeners, there might be some people who have not heard of that. You just want to give a couple sentence summary of what you mean by irreducible complexity. That might be helpful. Sure. It's just some system that has a number of different parts, and they all interact to do something, to do a function. And if you take one away, then it doesn't work. And the, mm. the example I always give is a mouse trap, a mechanical mouse trap. Yeah. You've got a spring and other metal parts and a little wooden base and so on. Take any one of those parts away, it, it pretty much is broken. And the problem for Darwin's theory is if you had to evolve something like that gradually by many steps that were improvements, it's real, real difficult, surprisingly difficult to see how that could happen. And even worse for Darwin's theory is that uh, the cell is run by machinery, sophisticated machinery that uh, in, very often is irreducibly complex. Hmm. So it, it becomes real, real difficult to see how the machinery of the cell could be put together uh, by, by gradual in a gradual fashion, like Darwin insisted. Yeah, yeah. So in my mind, that really just compounds the problem. I mean, you've got the mechanisms that he proposed itself that are shown to degrade things uh, before they will ever construct anything. And then to compound the problem, in my mind, you've got to figure out some way for these things to build even more complex structures and even structures that depend on other uh, parts of the structure to work, much like a mousetrap has independent parts that work together. You take one away, and the whole thing collapses. So that just compounds the problem, really. Uh, is, is yeah, what that's right. And, and that's because he essentially just barking up the wrong tree. It was a good try, but it, it, it does not work. And so it, it's time for some different thinking here. Sure, sure. Now, I, I'd be remiss not to mention uh, for a moment the, the Lenski study that you mentioned. This is essentially, uh, it's pretty common. I think a lot of people know about it because it's been going on for some time. But this is essentially the largest and longest uh, observable study that has ever been conducted uh, on evolutionary mechanisms. Is that right? And it, it certainly yeah. It doesn't seem to be helping us. We still have a bunch of bacteria. Uh, 
Yeah, it's, it has been going on for 30 years, and, wow. and he's been growing bacteria in his lab. And since they grow so fast and they're so small, there has been an enormous number of generations of these things, 60,000 generations of mm. bacteria and trillions of them uh, over the time of the experiment. And he has seen that they have improved, that they grow faster, that they can uh, do other things that, uh, that help them uh, kind of edge out all the other cells. And uh, But when our ability to sequence DNA has improved, he's been able to track down those mutations. And it turns out that all of them degrade or break genes, that there, there have been you know, dozens and dozens of these mutations, and they all uh, break or, uh, or at least uh, degrade the gene that, that they occur in. Right. So this is this is the best, the very best uh, evolution experiment that's ever been conducted, um, and it it uh, it points very strongly to exactly what I argue in in the book. Sure, sure. Well, that I mean that's encouraging, uh, for, for, you know, for all of us on this end to know that there is someone who has under undertaken the test, and certainly uh, I don't think he's terribly thrilled <laughs> i don't want to put words in his mouth but i mean i i, I he still is a is a, a darwinist I mean, he's still an evolutionist in fact yeah. he he has written one of the critical responses so far to, to your book however i'm going to let you uh, address that in just a second um but ultimately what his study implies uh, is exactly the thesis you argue for uh in in the book so that's that's interesting um uh-huh you know, so in the final chapter of the book, you, you kind of take us to what you believe uh, to be the reason why there is not, nor can there ever be, a naturalistic um, mechanism to account for significant biological change. Now, obviously, um, because you are an in- a proponent of intelligent design, I don't think it's any secret that you believe purposeful design to be um, by a superior uh, superior intelligence. You believe that to be what is responsible. So um, that's no secret, of course, but but what is it that tells you that it's design that we find in nature? I mean, even back to Paley's watchmaker argument, I mean, what you know, what is it really that we that we see working together to tell us, oh, this is design. Design is actually detectable, but how do we know that? Well, it, it turns out to be, it, it sounds kind of philosophical and esoteric, but it, it's really pretty simple. And if you look in the dictionary, uh, one of the definitions of design is the purposeful arrangement of parts. Mm. And so we recognize that there has been design or that a mind has caused things to come together whenever we see a number of different parts, a number of different components ordered to each other so that they can do something that so that they have a purpose mm-hmm. or they uh, can do something beyond themselves. And, and that sounds pretty fancy, but, you know, just think back at the mousetrap. Nobody, everybody who looks at a mousetrap would realize it was designed, even if you haven't seen it before. Sure. Because you see the parts that are set up and they interact with each other to, to do something. And same thing with writing. You know, if you look at a book then uh, you can see the letters arranged so that 
they do something. You're not just a, a jumble of, of ink on, on paper. And it turns out that this is the way, the only way, that you can recognize that another mind besides your own uh, exists. Hmm. Um, it, uh, I give an example in the book of a, of a, a Frenchman who was a, you know, an editor of a magazine, and, and he had uh, something like a stroke, and it left him with uh, a uh, condition called locked-in syndrome, where he was utterly paralyzed, except that he could blink his left eye. And he set up a code with some uh, a nurse translator, and he dictated a book about his experiences, uh, which was published and and uh, and uh, was a best uh, seller. But if you looked at the fellow in the bed, even though he's a human, even you know, a person, you'd just see essentially a vegetable yeah. uh, or you know an, uh, an inert body. Uh, and yet, here was uh, we can tell that he's not comatose or anything because he can blink out in a purposeful way uh, this uh, his his own story. Mm. And well, then this goes then in life as well. In life, you know, life is just chock full of purposeful arrangements of parts. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for that, you know, there would be no no life. Yeah. And so uh, uh, I argue that we can know, that's how we detect that a mind has acted uh, from this purposeful arrangement. So we can know that a mind uh, made life, and we can also know that no mindless process uh, could do that, because you need, it needs, a, a mind is needed to order things to each other, because a mind can have purposes and a mind can uh, uh, pull things together that it can manipulate in order to uh, to um, fulfill its purposes. Yeah, and um, and that, by the way, thank you. That, that's a great summary. And the the fact of the matter is, what you really argue for uh, is that if we give up this notion, then you know, philosophically, and this is admittedly more of a philosophical chapter, we're f- left with something like solipsism. We, we really, we give up the ability to, to detect other minds if, if we want to say that what we detect um, in in this uh, new mon- molecular world that we've discovered, if we want to, to try to claim that that is not the purposeful arrangement of parts, then we just have lost the ability to detect mind. <laughs> really. That's, that's exactly right. And, and uh, it may surprise, you know, listeners, but that idea is spreading, you know, pretty quickly mm. in academia that, in fact, we don't have minds. Not only don't we have minds, but uh, we might just be, um, we might be um, figures in a computer simulation, or, yeah. or we might, uh, uh, oh, have have other a very irrational basis. But uh, the point is, if you can't attribute a pers- purposeful arrangement of parts to a mind, you quickly lose the ability to recognize even your own mind. Wow. And you start to doubt your own, your own self, your own soul. Uh, you, you know, it's impressive that people can be talked out of their minds 
but uh, in, in academia, it happens to save Darwinism. I mean, really, to to yeah. save to save what Dawkins called the only way that you could have an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And of course, I'll remind yeah. everybody that it was even Dawkins who said that biology is essentially the the study of those things that look like they're designed on purpose. Uh, it's it's yeah. it's hard to deny this, and so. Uh, indeed, the denial of it just leads to, to ridiculous kind of um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. suggestions. Um, so uh, the last thing, and uh, I know we're, we're, we're uh, right on time here, we're, we're needing to wrap up, but I just want to give you an opportunity real quick. There has been some critical feedback. As a matter of fact, there was, uh, <laughs> there was some critical feedback, I believe, that was published by the journal Science, or I can't remember exactly if it was, uh, if it was Science, who published it even before the book came out. They were already ready to go with some responses to you um what of the critical feedback i mean is anybody you know has anybody sunk your arguments yet or what you know what's you know well you're you're asking an an interested party but uh <laughs> in, in my uh in my completely neutral opinion no they, they don't even try to sink it uh wow. the the science review science is maybe the the second leading journal in the world after mm-hmm. nature uh, so it's it's really up there, and the yeah. reviewers, uh, at least one of them was a prominent scientist, Richard Lenski himself, whose work we talked about. Yes. They didn't even address the arguments. That It was really uh, uh, kind of bittersweet for me. I, <laughs> I liked it because they, it showed they didn't have an argument against yeah. my, my ideas, but it was uh, bitter because they didn't tell anybody else about it. They just <laughs> railed. Uh, for their 700 words or, or so, they sure. they said, well, B he says that you know that random mutation stuff can only break genes, but we know about this, that, and the other thing. And with the uh, with those arguments, they point to examples that either are irrelevant or are question begging because they don't know if Darwin's mechanism produced changes that they point to and. And they criticized me for not responding to past criticisms of Darwin's Black Box and and my other book, The Edge of Evolution. But I had, in fact, written lots of stuff uh, responding to all those arguments, and they just uh, waved it over. So it was really uh, it was really astounding. Again, uh, I, I, let me just tell you know any uh, listeners that. Uh, the science battle uh, has been won. You know, Darwin's theory simply can't account for what we found out. The only battle left is the essentially public relations and, and sociological battle. <laughs> sure, and, and I'll I'll add to that that I, I for the life of me I can't remember if it's DarwinDevolves.com or if it's Dar DarwinDevolvesBook.com. Um, the website no, for darwindevolves.com darwindevolves.com yeah if you if you uh-huh. if you go there not only can you find the book and everything there but actually um everybody there at uh, i guess it's you or the discovery institute who's ever handling that is actually keeping a track of the of the res- of yeah. the critical reviews and reactions and your responses to them um so i would That's really cool. encourage anybody who's interested in it because what uh what mike here is talking about is 100 
hundred percent. I mean, it's documented. I mean, he's he's not just uh, you know throwing stuff at you here. Um, the reality is, is you can literally see them. Uh, and Mike has written some of the responses, and others uh, of his colleagues have written some of the responses. But they'll point right to where he's responded to arguments that the critical feedback says he hasn't responded to. And so um, it uh, it really makes you wonder. You know, is there a counter argument here or not? And um, you know that the second largest science journal in the world with some pretty prestigious names attached to the review couldn't immediately refute such a foundational argument that should be really telling i mean like like mike said the science battle has been won that's amazing (laughs) that's amazing mike listen i I so much uh, appreciate your time we went a little bit longer than we had planned to but i you've been a sport and i I very much appreciate you uh giving us your time for a few moments um darwindevolves.com you can go right there and check out the book and uh i just uh, i hope that you will keep mike in your in your prayers uh he's certainly been a um force to be reckoned with in the intelligent design movement and he is certainly putting himself out there uh, along with his colleagues to to bring this idea that Darwin doesn't have the goods to the, to the main stage. And slowly but surely, Mike, it seems like it's working a little bit at a time. Yeah, so. faster these days, I think, uh, yes. science progresses. That's amazing. That's amazing. Mike, thank you so much for your time. You, you've been very gracious to us, and we, we appreciate that. We're praying for you. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's been a lot of fun. Thank okay. You. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, friends. Well, that was obviously a wonderful, wonderful interview with Dr. Behe. I hope you enjoyed your time listening as much as I enjoyed recording it. He was excellent to fellowship with and just a true gentleman and a hilarious guy and super, super knowledgeable, knows what he's doing, knows what he's talking about. And so that was a great conversation. There's not much more I can add to that other than make sure to go get the book darwindevolves.com you gotta go get the book check out I mean there's a there's a couple of appendices in there and uh, the book itself is a it's a great read it's a long read but it's a, it's a great read and I highly encourage you to go pick it up it will change your perspective probably or at least widen your perspective on a lot of key issues all right so without further ado let's go ahead and say a prayer close up for today Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We want to say thank you so much for what you allow us to see in your world, Lord. We uh, even are allowed the ability to detect that there are other minds other than ours, not to mention yours, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to be able to discover you, not only through your revealed word and your revealed son, but Lord, through the revealed world that you have given us as well to study. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself, Lord, in nature. We love you and want to say thank you for the many opportunities and blessings that you've given each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, well, I hope you will take time to join us next week right here, same time, same place on the Steve Schramm Show. Hey, a couple things. Don't forget, you can head over to our Facebook group by going to steveschramm.com slash community. You can join up over there and talk about the episodes each week as they come out, etc. Of course, you can go to creationcourses.com, the sponsor for this episode. Go out there and check out any courses that we have available. And anytime you're looking for any of our podcasts or videos or articles, any online resources, you can just go to steamstram.com and find all of that stuff there. All right. So many blessings to you. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.